This is Catholic Daily Brief. Episode 10, Jesus, Fully God and Fully Man. When we say that about Jesus, it seems like a contradiction. To have two things be one thing. Well, in the case of Jesus, which is what we're going to talk about here, we're not talking about two and one of the same thing. What we say of Jesus is that he has two natures in one person. Those are two distinct concepts. It would be another thing if we were saying, Jesus has two natures in one nature. That's a contradiction. Or two persons in one person. Also a contradiction. But we're saying he is one person with two natures. Now, while that's certainly mysterious and requires some study and articulation and explanation, it's certainly not illogical or contradictory or nonsensical. So what exactly does it mean to say that Jesus is fully God and fully man, or that he is one person with two natures? We always have to start with the caveat that we're talking about a supernatural mystery. So it's not as if this is something that we can explain or comprehend fully, and it's not something that we could have reasoned to without the benefit of revelation. But it's certainly something that we are obligated to try to penetrate as best we can with our minds, which are a gift of God, to come to know the person of Christ, who Christ is, because as we know, he is God who we are to worship and to love. And to love someone, we have to be able to know them. First, it's important to define the terms we're using here. What does nature mean and what does person mean? These are both common words that we use. We've used the word person before, talking about other people. We've used the word nature. But here we're not talking about nature in the sense of, you know, the external world. We're talking about the essence of something, what something is. When you're asking about something's nature, you're asking, what kind of thing is it? And that's the first uh, way we can understand that term nature, is that it answers the question, what is it? If someone asks you what something is, the answer that you give, defining the thing, That is usually its nature, what something is. And the term person answers the question, who is it? So if you see someone walking by on the street and your friend asks, who is that? The answer you're going to give is the identity of the person. If for some strange reason they ask, what is that? The answer you give is the nature, you say, that is a human being. So that's the distinction between the two. Nature answers the question, what is it? Person answers the question, who is it? Another way to understand the distinction between person and nature is that a nature is that which has capacities or powers to do certain things, and the person is the one that does them. So for example, because of our human nature, we have an intellect and a will. We have the ability to laugh. That is because of our nature. Whereas when we do any thinking or any willing or any laughing, it is the person who does those things. So nature has certain abilities and capacities, 
and a person is the one that exercises those abilities and capacities. One final way to explain the relationship between person and nature is that a person has or possesses a nature, not vice versa. So a person as the one who exercises the powers and capacities of its nature possesses the nature. I have a human nature. I'm not identified with my human nature, but I possess it as an individual. So we can see from all three of these explanations that there's no logical contradiction between saying something can have multiple natures. You can think of an individual having multiple natures, and it doesn't cause any contradiction in our minds. It's something we certainly don't experience. Just think of the fact that you as a human being have a body and a soul. Now that's, like I said, not the same thing because our human nature is the combination of our body and our soul and Christ himself had a body and a soul. But you can think of a person having multiple realities that they possess, if you want to put it like that. So when we want to understand the identity of Christ, we'll have to answer the questions regarding nature and person. So when we say, what is Christ? We would answer, he is both God and man, having both human and divine natures. When we say, who is Christ? The most proper answer would be the second person of the Blessed Trinity, that he is God, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God has existed from all eternity. He is the word through whom the universe was created. Divine person assumed or subsumed the human nature into himself. And this happened at the very moment of conception in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit, that at that very moment, the human and divine natures were joined in the person, the second person of the Trinity. And in the year 451, there was an ecumenical council, a council of the whole church that articulated how we can describe this union, that it was in one person, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So the two natures remain distinct. They're not mixed together, but they're both joined and united in the second person of the Trinity. So at that moment of the conception in the womb of the Blessed Mother, you had the second person of the Trinity with both a divine and a human nature. And it's important to describe accurately the identity of Christ in this way, even though it sounds like it's some high-level theology or semantics or something like that, and that it isn't important for your average Christian. It really is. Because as the fathers of the church say, what was not assumed was not redeemed. So if Christ didn't really take to himself in a real union our human nature, then he didn't redeem it. If Christ didn't assume every part of our human nature, our human nature in all its integrity, without altering it or mixing it with the divine nature, unless he took on our authentic human nature, then it wasn't redeemed by him because he wouldn't have had our nature. That's why the disputes that happened in the early centuries of the church at these ecumenical councils seem to most people now like it was just squabbling over terms that aren't important. But you hopefully you see why it's important because we have to understand, first of all, the reality of who Christ is. He came to reveal himself to us, so it's important that we struggle to understand his identity as best we can. And also we have to understand that he really took on our human nature, and that means that would lead to other disputes, other questions, and theological discussions about, well, then he must have had two wills. He had to have a human will, 
and we know that he always had his divine will. He had to have a human intellect because that's part of our human nature. He had human emotions. We see that even in the Gospels because he was a human being, an authentic, integral human being. That's why there was condemnation of those who would say things like, no, the, the, the two natures were actually mixed together to form some third kind of nature, or that they were so separated that Christ kind of had this split personality. You might remember when there were a new translation of the Mass that came out about 10 years ago. There were a lot of people that complained about some of the wording, and in particular, adding the word consubstantial with the Father, that line in the creed. But that was done because that term was of utmost importance in the first ecumenical council of the church that explained and articulated how Christ was God equal with the Father, of one substance with the Father. And so these terms and these precise definitions and explanations of God, whether we're talking about the Trinity or whether we're talking about Christ, are really important because we need to, and we are called to, try to understand as best we can what God revealed to us about himself. So Christ is the divine person, the second person of the Trinity, that has both, of course, the divine nature, because he is God, and a human nature, because he is also fully man. And these two natures are united in the person, and it's not some kind of split personality. It is the one person acting with the capacities of both natures. That's why we can speak about Christ in a way that is called a communication of idioms. That means that both the properties of the human nature and the divine nature and the actions of the human nature and the divine nature can be ascribed to the one person. That's why we can say that, for example, the Son of God wept or the Son of God was moved with pity or the Son of God died. Now, these are things that Christ was able to do because he had a human nature. The divine nature is unchangeable, incapable of death. And yet we say the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, died for our sins. Or the Son of God wept. Or the Son of God was hungry. This communication of idioms is what allows us to call Mary the mother of God. Because she gave birth to Christ as regards his human nature, but his human nature from the moment of conception was inseparably united to the divine nature in the second person of the Trinity. So when Mary gave birth to Jesus, she gave birth to the one who was the Son of God. Not as if she gave birth to his divine nature, that would be ridiculous, but she gave birth to the one who was the Son of God. Now I mentioned already that the fathers of the church said that what was not assumed or taken on by the Son of God, was not redeemed by the Son of God. This is seen most importantly when we talk about Jesus' crucifixion. Because Jesus is the one divine person with the two natures, human and divine, and since we have this communication of idioms where we're able to ascribe to the Son of God the actions or the attributes of the two natures, when Jesus died on the cross, his sacrifice was of infinite value because his human nature was united inseparably to his divine nature. So the qualities of his divine nature were ascribed to the one person of Jesus. Therefore, we can say that the value was infinite and capable of redeeming us, saving us from our sins, even though only the human nature suffered actual death. 
Now keep in mind, once again, these are not word games. We're not just fiddling with words. It's our limited human attempt to grapple with an infinite mystery, something that we can never adequately explain. But in all these explanations, we're trying to square what Christ revealed about himself with our human concepts and our human language that always falls short of divine realities. So this is us just trying to delve as deep as we can into the mystery of the divine and human natures of Jesus. Not that we'll ever fully comprehend it, even in heaven. Because it's an infinite reality, God is an infinite reality, and we will be limited creatures, finite creatures, even in heaven. There will always be more richness to God. Uh, we'll always be discovering more and more about God for all eternity because he is infinite and we are not. But this grappling and struggling with language and these terms to try and describe Christ is a really important endeavor because if we're not trying to understand who Christ is, then our love of Christ can never be authentic. If we don't know who we are loving, then our love at least can't be said to be as perfect as it can be. Now, this isn't to say that everyone needs to understand these terms and go through this intellectual process, otherwise they don't love God. Not at all. But the main point is coming to understand what Christ revealed about himself. And this is the way the church did it in the early centuries, by trying to be as clear as possible about who it is that we worship and love. Let me conclude with words from the Catechism of the Council of Trent. This is a catechism produced after the Ecumenical Council of Trent in the 16th century. Speaking of Christ, it says, When the faithful have placed all of these things before their eyes, let them also reflect that God condescended to assume the lowliness and frailty of our flesh in order to exalt man to the highest degree of dignity. This single reflection, that he who is true and perfect God became man, supplies sufficient proof of the exalted dignity confirmed on the human race by the divine bounty, since we may now glory that the Son of God is bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh, a privilege not given to angels. For nowhere, says the apostle, does he take hold of the angels, but of the seed of Abraham he does take hold. Thank you for listening to Catholic Daily Brief. Please follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and check out my Patreon for other member content. God bless.